0: Well, what a thrill it is for, for me to be here uh, to worship with you and to be invited to open the Word of God with you. I drove uh, down from Muskoka Bible Center up near Huntsville yesterday, and I didn't take the 400 series highways. I've been in the desert for such a long time, I thought I wanted to see some green, and uh, so I did. I just took the back roads, and what a beautiful country we have It's so different than driving through the Arabian desert. So, really glad to be back in Canada for a couple of months, not quite, just shy of two months, visiting partner churches, and we are so thankful that People's Church here in Wyoming has agreed to partner with us in the gospel work that God is doing in Arabia, the Middle East, and the 1040 window. Uh, for those of you who do not know where Dubai is, it's in a country called the United Arab Emirates on the Arabian Peninsula. Uh, we're just across the Persian Gulf from Iran. We share a border with Saudi Arabia, and we're right between those two countries. Iraq and Kuwait are just up uh, the coast, and so that's where we live and do our ministry. And God is doing an amazing thing there. Uh, of The whole region is hostile to Christians and to the gospel, and yet, in the United Arab Emirates, there's a, a small window in that region where we are permitted to be there. Now, there are many obstacles. It's still a Muslim country, and yet we are there, and we are training uh, ministry leaders, church planners, and pastors to go from Dubai across the Middle East and into the least reached regions in the world for the gospel. Uh, as I mentioned in the video, we have students from 27 countries. Most of these countries are difficult or impossible for Westerners like us to get into, but we can train people from these places who, who are of the same ethnicity, who speak the language, who know the culture who are aware of the political realities, who can then go to their home trained up with a solid theological education to plant churches to spread the gospel. And so this is a very strategic place, strategic ministry. And as I said, we are so thankful that People's Church is partnering with us. Without you, we could not be there doing what we are doing. So thank you. If, if I only came to say thank you, it would be worth the trip. Uh, You are actively participating in the global expansion of the gospel into the frontiers of where the gospel is not yet. In fact, uh, billions of people less than six hours from where I live have never even heard of the name of Jesus Christ, and you are helping them to hear not only of, of Christ but of Christ and His gospel. Is also very personal, and we're so thankful that People's Church is partnering with us because this church has made a deep impact on our lives. Uh, we are grateful to the elders of this church. Uh, the elders have come alongside me and my wife for 20 years in ministry. Living in Dubai has made us ask the question, what does it mean to be home? What is home? And where is home for us? Uh, We were born and raised in Canada, in southwestern Ontario. Uh, And when we decided to move to Dubai, we had to ask the question, are we cutting ties with Canada as our home and making Dubai our home? Because we want to go there with a permanent mindset. We have no plans of leaving. Now, God will eventually probably take us out of Dubai, but as far as our intention, we are planning to, to stay, as long as the Lord would enable us to stay there. So, does that mean that we have to have just one home? Is Dubai home or is Canada home? Well, one thing we've learned is that we can have more than one home. Uh, we can have Dubai as our home, and it is increasingly becoming home, but as we come home in the summer, it's a reminder that, well, Canada will always be home for us as well, and we can have more than one home. because Even if we don't have real estate here, Canada is always a place of home for us. But as we probe this question a little bit deeper, we realize that whether we were in Dubai or in Canada, neither are truly home because wherever we are on this earth, the world is not our home. I was reading through 1 Peter recently, and it struck me that three times in the letter, Peter refers to Christians as exiles and sojourners. That we are all in exile in this world. In fact, that's a major theme in, in Peter's letters. And what does it mean to be in exile? Well, exile is to be forcibly removed from home and to be prevented from returning. If you are forcibly removed from your home and you're prevented from returning, then you are in exile. And so Peter says that we are all sojourners in this world. We are all in exile because we have been been forcibly removed from home. You might say, well, that hasn't happened to me. But yes, it has. The human race was forcibly removed from the Garden of Eden as the just punishment for the fall of Adam and Eve. And, and we've been exiled from our true home, which is this union with Christ and God since then. Yes, we, some of that has been restored by the gospel. Uh, we have the down payment of that restoration, which is the Holy Spirit. Uh, but, but Jesus isn't here. And Paul himself says in Philippians, I don't know which I would prefer, whether or not I would rather to stay here. That would be fruitful for you if I did. But I would rather depart to be at home with Christ. Whether I'm here or there, I'm going to live for Christ. That's a paraphrase of what Paul is saying. And so we're all in exile. The world is not our home. So practically, what does this mean for us? It means a lot of things, and we don't have time to get into all of them. But just two things I want to highlight. First... To be in exile is difficult. Is your life difficult? Maybe not every day, every moment, but, but your life is not easy. We, there are struggles. There, are, there is suffering when you are in exile. Life is hard, and it really helps to have a theology of exile when your life is not going the way that you want it to or the way that you planned it to be. You can remind yourself, well, of course life is hard. Of course I'm suffering. I'm not at home. I'm in exile, and so we can have exilic expectations. Secondly, and this is what I want to focus on this morning, to be in exile is to be in between two greater realities. To be in exile is to be in between two greater realities. There's a past reality and a future reality, and to be in exile is to be caught between the two. What's behind us if we're in exile? Well, if you're sitting in Babylon, what's behind you? The destruction of Jerusalem is behind you. And why was Jerusalem destroyed? It was destroyed because of your sin. Therefore, God has already punished your sin if you're sitting in exile. And so if you're in exile, it means your sin has already been punished. That's behind you. But if you're in exile, there's something that lays before you which is your restoration. The, the Old Testament prophets promised over and over again that God would punish the people by taking them into exile, and then when they were in exile, God promised to restore them. And so if you're in exile, judgment is behind you and restoration is in front of you, and in exile is hard, and you're waiting for restoration, but you can be thankful that punishment is already passed. Today's text is Psalm 99. And we're going to see this tension of past judgment and future restoration in this, in this text, in this psalm, and it's going to guide us in knowing how to live in exile. So would you please open your Bibles to Psalm 99? And as you're finding your place, would you please stand for the reading of the Word of God? Psalm 99, this is the Word of God. The Lord reigns, let the peoples tremble. He sits enthroned upon the cherubim, let the earth quake. The Lord is great in Zion. He is exalted over all the peoples let them praise your great and awesome name holy is he the king in his might loves justice you have established equity you have executed justice and righteousness in jacob oh exalt the lord our god worship at his footstool Holy is He. Moses and Aaron were among His priests. Samuel also was among those who called upon His name. They called to the Lord, and He answered them. In the pillar of the cloud, He spoke to them. They kept His testimonies and the statute that He gave to them. O Lord our God, You answered them. You were a forgiving God to them, but an avenger of their wrongdoings. Exalt the Lord our God and worship at His holy mountain, for the Lord our God is holy. Let's pray. God, it is our desire as we are exiles and sojourners in this world to exalt You, O Lord our God, for You are holy. Lord, help me to preach. Speak through me. Minister to this church by your Holy Spirit. Encourage us. Challenge us with the gospel from Psalm 99. I pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Please be seated. I don't know if you noticed something as we were reading through Psalm 99, but you might be asking, well, where in there do we hear anything about exile? It's what makes context so important as we're interpreting this psalm. In fact, there are five books in the Psalter. You probably know that. So in the book of Psalms, uh, you could divide that into five books. And and the, the Psalter, as we have it, was compiled sometime after the exile, after the restoration even, uh, of a remnant back to Jerusalem after their 70 years in Babylon. And the Psalms that were included in the Psalter were written over, you know, the many hundreds of years of Israel's history. And the way the Psalter was put together was to tell Israel's story. And so, book 1 runs from Psalm 1 through 41, and this really is the prayer book of King David. And we get an inner glimpse of of David's devotional life, and he is the one that that set Israel on a course of writing and praying the Psalms. Before that, if you look at the Torah, the books of Moses, there was a lot of activity for worship, but not a lot of words for worship. And so, the first book is the the prayer book of King David, and it becomes uh, the, the archetype for the prayer life of Israel. Book 2, then, we see a transition from the prayer book of David, the king, to the prayer book of Israel in the temple. You see many psalms for the sons of Korah. You see some psalms of David. And the very last psalm, so these the book 2 runs from 42 to 72, is a psalm of Solomon. Solomon built the temple. What we have there is a transition. Now, Israel is using the Psalter for their prayer book. Book 3 also is the prayer book of the temple, and that runs from Psalm 73 through 89, and what we see in Psalm uh, book 3 is the decline of Israel toward exile, as the prophets are warning the people of their sin, and we see psalms that represent Israel struggling with their own sinfulness. Book 4 then, which runs from Psalm 90 through 106, is the prayer book for the exilic community. For the remnant of people that were sitting in Babylon, which means that Psalm 90, uh, between Psalm 89 and 90, you can presuppose the destruction of Jerusalem. And that's where we find our psalm is in book 4. In fact, Psalm 99 is the last of, of six psalms that enthrone God as their king because the Davidic king is in a Babylonian dungeon. And so as they're sitting in Babylon in exile, they, they remind themselves that God has always been their ultimate king. Book 5 then, Psalms 107 through 150, is the prayer book for the restored, restored community in Jerusalem. And it's a celebration of the, the, the restoration by God of God's people to Jerusalem, the rebuilding of the temple. And that's where you have these Psalms of ascent, as they ascend to a rebuilt temple to worship God, as God had promised. And it ends with Hallelujah Psalms, praising God for His mighty acts of salvation. So our psalm is in book 4. It's the prayer book of the exilic community. And so if we're going to interpret it, we have to interpret it as as exiles sitting in Babylon. And what would this psalm feel like, sound like? What would its function be in our life? If we were sitting in Babylon. Well, throughout Book Four, we see the exilic community looking back to the Exodus, looking back to Moses and Aaron and the wilderness. Why? Because as they're sitting in Babylon, they were hoping for, they were praying for a second Exodus. They were saying, God, you, you delivered us from slavery in Egypt. Now we're sitting in captivity in Babylon. You delivered us once, deliver us again, do it again. We need a second exodus, and we see Moses and Aaron and Samuel even in our psalm today. For the church then, book 4 reminds us that we also are in exile. We're waiting for restoration to the eternal promised land. Just like the Babylonian exiles, we are waiting for full and final restoration Another interesting little trivia point on book 4 is if you're sitting in Babylon, you might, might think that it would be filled with dark lamentation, because there are lament psalms. You know what's interesting about book 4? Even though it is the prayer book for the exilic community, it's filled with psalms of praise. There's not a single lament in book 4. Why? Because judgment was behind them, and the promise of restoration stood before them, and so they praised God that they were still there that by God's mercy and grace He preserved a remnant. Likewise, we in the church are a remnant of the human race waiting for the restoration of the human race to a new Jerusalem, a new heavens, and a new earth. Well, this psalm that we're going to see expresses three main themes. Past judgment, future restoration, and then what do we do in between? Let's take a closer look. We're going to begin by looking at how this psalm speaks to past judgment. The theme of past judgment is implicit because of Israel's historic experience. As I said, Jerusalem had been destroyed. If you're sitting in Babylon, this is what your year looked like. I know many of us had difficult years, but if if you were in Babylon and you were just freshly there, this is what your last year looked like. You saw Nebuchadnezzar and the Babylonian army encircle your city. While you were inside, you began to starve to death. Your neighbors began to eat their own children. Your loved ones died of starvation. And then the Babylonians broke down the walls and they attacked. They killed most of the people that you knew and loved. For some reason, they didn't kill you. But most of your family had been killed. Your property had been destroyed. Any savings that you had had been stolen from you. The temple had been ripped down. And when they tore down the Holy of Holies, God was not there. So if you're sitting in exile, what what do you need to be reminded of? What What are the theological crises in your mind, in your heart, in your soul? Well, you're asking this question, does God even exist? Maybe you've had that question yourself when life is hard. Is there really a God in heaven? And maybe you were able to maintain some confidence. That, no, God does exist. But then your second question would be, well, does God even care? If he, if he does exist, does He care? Because I've had the worst year of my life. And if you could convince yourself that God cared, you would have to ask the question, well, is God powerless? Is Nebuchadnezzar so much stronger than the God of Israel? Because it seemed fairly easy for Nebuchadnezzar to wipe us out. So, is he stronger? So, what do you need to be reminded of in exile? You need to be reminded that there is a God in heaven, that God is love that He cares for you, and that He is all-powerful, even though it might not seem like those things are true, those things are true. And so this psalm begins by, by reminding the exilic community just who God is. And we see in verses 1 through 3, there's some, some reminders about who God is. I don't have time to go through this in detail, but if I was to summarize this, the conclusion is God is holy. If we need to understand or if we, if, we, if we need help to understand why we're sitting in exile and we're trying to understand how that's possible, if there's a God in heaven who loves us and is all-powerful, then this is what we need to be reminded of. God is holy. In fact, the Lord reigns. God is sovereign, not Nebuchadnezzar. Therefore, the people should tremble, including the Babylonians. He's the one who sits enthroned upon the cherubim, so the earth should quake. The Lord is great in Zion. But I saw the temple tore down, and He wasn't there. No, the Lord is great in Zion. He put His name there forever, and forever it will remain there. In fact, God will be exalted over all the peoples. So let them praise Your great and awesome name. He's holy. In fact, that becomes the foundation then for where the psalm goes next. It explains why we're sitting in Babylon. It explains why Jerusalem was destroyed. The holiness of God explains why He wasn't in the temple when it was torn down. Read Ezekiel 8-10. through God left because of the sin of the people. He wasn't there. Because the sin of Israel had driven him away. God is holy, and he cannot live forever with sin. So, in verse 4, we are reminded that the holiness of God requires him to judge sin. Take a look at verse 4. The king, meaning God, this is the last of six enthronement psalms where Yahweh is proclaimed King of Israel. The King in His might loves justice. It sounds nice, doesn't it? To say that our God is a holy, all-powerful, mighty King who loves justice. Don't we love to say that, to remind ourselves of that? He's our God. We belong to Him. He belongs to us. He's our God. He's holy. He is the King of kings and the Lord of lords and He loves justice and He's mighty. He's all-powerful. There is no power greater than He. That's what verse 4 says. We love to say that, but, and this is where the psalm takes a surprising turn, what happens if our King, who is all-powerful and mighty, loves, who loves justice, turns that love of justice against Against his own people. God's holiness requires him to judge us for our sin. That's where verse 4 continues. And this is what the worship leader in Babylon is telling to the people. He's saying, This is why we need to worship God. And then he directs, he speaks on behalf of the remnant community in Babylon to God. And he says, You, O God, have established equity. You have executed justice and righteousness. Now, if we stop there, oh, that sounds good. But where does it go? What does it say after that in verse 4? In Jacob. Jacob's another name for Israel. We praise you, God. Because you've established equity in Israel. You've established equity or, uh, uh, justice and righteousness in, in Jacob. In other words, you've judged us. You have found us guilty for our sin. You've judged us and we praise you for it. We worship you for destroying Jerusalem. We worship you for coming against us in your wrath. We worship you because you are holy and what you did was good and right. Now, is that not counterintuitive? to worship God for the worst year of your life because you deserved it. What does it mean that God establishes equity? Well, it means an eye for an eye, a tooth for a tooth, a life for a life, a Sabbath for a Sabbath. They had been profaning God's Sabbaths and worshiping other gods ever since they came into the land. And therefore God said, finally, my patience has run out and I'm going to judge you with equity for your sin. And God's judgment is always perfect. He never overdoes it. He never is more harsh than we deserve. His justice was perfect. Praise you God for judging us. It seems harsh to us what you did to us. You laid us low but we worship You for equity. We know You judged us with equity. The second thing that it means is You treated us like all the other nations. In Deuteronomy 9, as Israel's going into the land, God says through Moses, don't for a moment think, when you go in to dispossess the Canaanites, that you are any more righteous than they are. I'm giving you the land for two reasons. One, I promised, it's a gift of grace because I promised to your forefathers, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and I'm keeping my promise some four centuries later. And secondly, I'm using you to punish the Canaanites for their sin. Their sin has now become too great. My patience has run out, so you are my instruments of judgment against them. You've established equity, O God, by using the Babylonians against us the way you used us against the Canaanites. No one is above the law and justice of God. So, if your definition of grace precludes or excludes the justice of God, you haven't understood grace. That's a cheap grace. you establish established justice and righteousness in Jacob. In Deuteronomy 28, God said, I'm going to bless you if you keep the terms of this covenant, and I'm going to curse you if you break covenant. So the worship leader, using Psalm 99 in Babylon, says we need to worship God for keeping His Word. God has been faithful to the covenant. What does that mean? He's cursed us. Just like He promised He would. Because we broke covenant. And so for God to keep covenant... The terms of the covenant were that if we broke covenant, He would curse us. He has kept His word. He has kept covenant. We are in Babylon because God is faithful to the covenant. Therefore, we ought to worship Him for being a promise-keeping God. In verse 8, we're told that God forgave Moses, Aaron, and Samuel when they sinned, but look at the bottom there. But He is also an avenger of their wrongdoings. This applies to Israel as well. It applies to the church as well. So, as exiles in this world, we who belong to Christ must gather week by week to exalt God. For punishing us for our sins now you might say whoa whoa whoa! <laughs> what about the gospel i, I thought we come here to praise god for his forgiveness Well, we do and do we need to rip these two things apart remember to be in exile is to be between two great events judgment is behind you and restoration is in front of you and what i want to declare to you right now from Psalm 99 is that you have been judged for your sin. You have been punished for your sin. But when and how and where? this is the glory of the gospel, that, that, that Jesus Christ came into the world as a man. He's fully God. He is the King that we exalt and enthrone in Psalm 99. But the King of kings and the Lord of lords, who is fully God, became one of us. Why? So that God could punish us for our sins. He had to be in the, in the likeness of sinful flesh. He had to be fully human like you and I. He had to be one of us. He had to be of us. And we have to, had to be with Him. And God united us with Him. And what do we learn in the Gospel? That Jesus took the, our sin into His body and carried it Golgotha, and when He was nailed to the cross in some mysterious way that I don't fully understand, nor can I communicate to you this morning, we were nailed to the cross with Him. Why? Because we are united with Christ in His death and resurrection. So, here's the good news, is that God has kept His Word, God has punished your sin, if you are in Christ, the punishment of your sin is in your past. You don't need to fear it in your future. Let me just read to you from Romans 6.6. We know that our old self was crucified with Him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. Here's the wonderful truth. You if you are in Christ by grace through faith, were crucified because you deserve to be crucified. You ever want to know what God thinks of your sin? Just look to the cross. You deserved and were crucified because of your sin. When were you crucified? When you were united with Christ on the cross. Therefore, your old self has been brought to nothing. Therefore, Romans 8.1, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ. Why? Because we have a King who is mighty and loves justice. And because God loves justice, He will not punish you for your sin twice. Once is enough. So, you have a choice. Either you allow yourself to be punished for your sin on the cross with Christ, or you wait to the final judgment and you are punished for your sin then and there. So you get to choose. Will the punishment for your sin be in your past or in your future? If you're in Christ, you have passed from death to life. Punishment is behind you. Praise be to God. So now, what does Psalm 99 say about future restoration? Restoration. Well, in addition to past judgment, we see promises of future restoration. There are four subtle but very real hopes of future restoration in this psalm. Take a look at verses 6 and 7. Moses and Aaron were among his priests. Samuel also was among those who called upon his name. They called to the Lord, and He answered them. Throughout book 4, Moses and Aaron get mentioned a lot. Why? Why? Because the the people sitting in Babylon wanted to remind themselves of the exodus. And as I said before, by reminding themselves of the ministry of Moses and Aaron and the wilderness wanderings in the exodus, they were, they were asking God for a second exodus. And so that's exactly what we have here in Psalm 99. Moses and Aaron make an appearance, and by, and by making an appearance in this psalm, the exilic community is reminding themselves that God is a God who delivers out of captivity. And therefore, the mention of Moses and Aaron is a promise, there's going to be a second Exodus. There's going to be a new Moses. There's going to be a new Aaron. We also see the mention of Samuel, and what do we know about Samuel? Samuel anointed David. If you're sitting in Babylon, your Davidic king is in a Babylonian dungeon. The mention of Samuel reminds you of the Davidic covenant, 2 Samuel 7. There will always be a king in the line of David over Israel. And his dynasty will endure forever. So, even though your king is in a dungeon, by mentioning Samuel, you're saying, Well, God, keep your word. You, you kept your promise to punish us, keep your promise to David. If you're a promise keeping God, we expect, in fact, we implore you to put a Davidic king on the throne. So, you're looking forward to restoration. We also see implicit promises of restoration in verses 5 and 9. Exalt the Lord our God. Why? Because you will again worship at His footstool. The footstool of God is the Ark of the Covenant in the Holy of Holies on Mount Zion in Jerusalem. You cannot worship at His footstool in Babylon, but verse 5 reminds you of the promise of restoration that one day you will. We see it again there in verse 9. uh, Exalt the Lord our God. Why? Because you will again worship at His holy mountain. You are in Babylon right now, but you will be restored to the holy mountain. That's where book 5 goes in the Psalter. These Psalms of Ascent. They get to ascend the holy mountain again to worship God. So, just as Israel looked forward to their restoration, so we must anticipate our restoration. Your life is not as good as it's going to be right now. In fact, it cannot be as good as it's going to be so long as you're in exile. And so long as you're in this world before Christ returns or you go to Him, you are in exile. But we will be restored to something greater. We will go home. Christ has gone ahead of us, but He has promised to take us where He is. Just listen as I read to you from Romans 6 verse 5. If we have been united with Him in a death like His, then we shall certainly be united with Him in a resurrection like His. If you died with Christ on the cross, you will be raised with Him in glory. There's a future restoration coming. And this restoration includes our physical resurrection from the dead. If I die before I finish preaching, put my body in the ground, and I will not stay there, Christ will raise me from the dead and restore me to eternal life in this body. So just as Israel looked forward to their restoration, so we also anticipate our own restoration. Well, if judgment is passed and restoration is future, what was Israel supposed to do in their present? We see the answer there in verses 5 and 9. Exalt the Lord our God. Exalt the Lord our God. What do do we do? while we wait for restoration. Well, we exalt the Lord that our judgment is past and we're still here. We anticipate our future restoration. And when we think about what is behind us and we consider what is ahead of us, it, it compels us to worship. So what do we do in between the times we, we wait and we worship? And we worship by exalting God in, in song and prayer. But more than that, we worship God by living obedient lives. Take a look at verse 7. God spoke to Moses, Aaron, and Samuel, and they kept His testimonies and the statute that He gave them. What do we do in Babylon? The remnant community asked. Well, this psalm says, imitate Moses, Aaron, and Samuel. Well, What does that imitation look like? Keep God's testimonies. Keep the statute that He gives to you. What did Jesus say? If you love Me, you will what? You will obey My commands. That's how we exalt the Lord our God. While we wait and worship, we obey. We keep the Word of God. And we're reminded in in. Romans 12, verses 1 and 2, that this is what we ought to be doing. I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Do not be conformed to this world. Why? Because this world is not your home, you're in exile. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. This world is not our home. We are sojourners and exiles in this world. So whether we live in Dubai or Wyoming, we have much to learn from the remnant community living in Babylon. Babylon was not their home. Wyoming is not your home. Dubai is not our home, so don't get too comfortable here. You should be uncomfortable. You should want something more. You should want to be at home. You should anticipate and long for the return of Christ. You should scoff at the prospect of your own death and take risks for the cause of Christ. We are, all of us, in exile. Judgment is behind us. Praise be to God. You don't need to fear condemnation. Restoration is ahead of us. Don't get so comfortable in Babylon. But while in Babylon, worship. Work for the king. Be obedient. Wait. Anticipate the return of our God." i leave you with these words of exhortation, and you know what? Whether you're here or in, in Dubai, the marching orders are exactly the same. Give your life to God through Christ Jesus, for He has paid it all and opened a way for us. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank You for this psalm. We thank You for the reality that we are in exile that this world is not our home. Now help us to live accordingly. In Christ's name we pray, amen.